Our scripture reading for today is from Hebrews 4, 1 through 13. That's Hebrews 4, 1 through 13. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter the rest, that rest, as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, And again, in this passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying, Through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Father, I thank you so much for Pastor Barry. I thank you for Pastor Joey. I thank you for their long service in that city of Newtown, Connecticut. I thank you that you saw fit to have one of those churches be about two blocks away from the crime scene. I thank you, Lord, that they have personal contacts with several of the families and with community leaders. I thank you that they're eager to minister to their city in the name of Jesus and not just in some nebulous name of God. I thank you, Father, that they see this as an opportunity to love and to share the love of Christ even as they help people discern the the realities of tragedies like this. And God, I just pray for them. I pray for wisdom for them. Pray for power for them. I pray for energy and insight for them. Lord, the burden upon them and upon the churches of that city, upon the community leaders, upon the mayor, upon the citizens will be there for years to come, not days or months. And so we pray for them, Father. We pray that in the depth of the midst of this tragedy now, we pray for special grace, special power. Let Newtown, Connecticut know that Jesus Christ is still on the throne and that the offer of life still remains for everyone who will receive it. Father, we love you that you are stable in the midst of storms like this. We praise you that you are good when we see such displays of evil, even when we don't understand how things like this can happen. 
And we thank you, Father, because we know that you'll walk with the people in this city all the way to the end. Father, we thank you with all of our hearts. May Jesus Christ come to Newtown, Connecticut in a special way like they've never seen him before. Now, Father, for the word before us, I lift myself up to you and I ask you to help me and use me now, Father. It's been a long week of study. This is a difficult chapter to understand and it's going to be difficult to explain in some respects, but I trust you, Father, and I ask that your purposes would, would be accomplished through this word. I pray that everything you intended to happen by this word would in fact happen, and I surrender myself to that, Father. I trust you for that, and I thank you that by this word you will teach this church to fear you and to strive to enter the rest that you provided in Christ. Thank you for being such a good father to us and bringing this word to us today in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Hebrews chapter three, verse seven, through chapter four, verse 13, is one unit of scripture. So sometimes the chapter divisions in the Bible are not all that helpful. That stuff was added later. So if you read Hebrews carefully, you'll see that three, seven to four, 13 is one unit, and we have to see it together. In last week, we looked at the first part of that warning in chapter 3, verses 7 through 19, where the author boldly warned us in the words of the Holy Spirit and said several times, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion in the day of testing in the wilderness. And there the author urged us to beware and to take care of our own hearts so that nothing of the evil of unbelief would grow up in our hearts. It's the most evil thing that could happen to a person is that unbelief takes root in the heart. Believe me, every sin is the fruit of unbelief. Unbelief is the root of every single sin. There's nothing more evil in the sight of God than an evil heart of unbelief. So the author's saying, take care, this could happen to you. And then the author encouraged us as an antidote to that, to exhort one another every single day as long as it's called today so that none of us will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So I have in my mind the, the picture of hard, hard soil. And our hearts can be like that when they get filled with unbelief. But what exhortation does is it tills the soil and it moisturizes the soil. It makes us supple before God and able to accept his word. And the author of Hebrews desperately wants us to receive this message. He pleads with us. Do not harden your hearts. Along the way, he showed us last week that we're not so different from the people who lived under Moses and who actually did fall away from God. They had the word of God in their grasp and yet they did not unite it with faith. They refused to believe. They rejected the wisdom of God in favor of their own wisdom and through their unbelief and disobedience, they actually did fall away from God. This happened to them. We're not all that different from them. We too could be like the seed on rocky soil that seems to be rooted in Christ, but we actually have no root. We spring up for a time, but when the testing comes, when the fire of life is turned up, when Satan begins to attack, when life gets hard, we fall away because we were never really truly rooted in Christ. And so the author, again, he's pleading with us, don't let this happen to you. He does not want this to happen to us. This is a sober warning, beloved, but it's a life-giving warning. And the reason I say that is because of chapter four, verse one. So now we're gonna look at the second part of this warning. Chapter four, verse one says that the promise of entering into God's rest still stands. And that's some great news. 
the disobedience of that former generation did affect their relationship with God, but it did not corrupt the actual promise of God to his people. That's good news. Jason, I, I, I can't remember exactly what verse it was where you talked about that corruption. There, we're acting corruptly. We're corrupting things around us, but we cannot corrupt God. We cannot corrupt his promises. His promises are incorruptible, undefilable, and unfading. And therefore, the good news for us is that the promise of entering into God's rest is still alive and it's still open for us. That generation had their turn. They turned their back on God and it's over for them, but it's not over for us. Listen to the words of Jesus Christ. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Beloved, when the Lord was offering rest to us, he was not saying, come and take a nap. You know, I got a hotel all put together. You can come and get some sleep. He was not saying... I know that life can be heavy from time to time. I know work is hard. I know there are family problems. I know this, I know that. And here, I'm, I'm here to lift the load off of your shoulders a little bit. He was saying something much more profound than that, beloved. Jesus knew the Bible backward and forward. And when he said, come and enter into my rest, he's talking about the rest that God provided, the rest that God offered to Israel, the rest that they rejected, the rest that the author of Hebrews is holding out to us and saying the offer of rest still stands. And so I say with passion and joy in my heart that the promise of entering God's rest still stands for every single person in this room today. Every one of us has it in our grasp because Jesus said so. The Bible says so. It's not too late. Eternal life is available. Despite all the evil and sin and wickedness and corruption in the world and maniac people who kill 20 children and 8 adults, no matter what, God's promise is still good. God's promise still stands. And no matter how corrupt this heart is, God is still holding out his arms and saying, come to me, come to me, all who will come, come to me. Buy without money and come and eat, come and drink. God is faithful, and so his promise still stands. Since this is true, the author issues another somewhat jarring but a loving admonition in verse one. Look what he says there. He says, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. That is the rest of God. So here's one of the commentaries that I read this week by a guy named Peter O'Brien. Here's what he said about this verse. He said, the author's aim here is to awaken a godly fear in his hearers so that they will be aware of the seriousness of their situation and so that they will be moved to persevere, so that they'll be moved to keep on keeping on, so that they'll be moved to continue believing. The motive for this urgent exhortation is the fact that the promise of entering God's rest remains open. So again, the message is it's not too late. God has opened up everything for you. So fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Do not take him lightly. Do not take his word lightly. Do not push his word aside. Do not prefer your own wisdom over the wisdom of God. Do not buck against the loving rebukes of God, but receive it. It's life for you. 
Hear the word of God and fear the Lord. That is the admonition. Now some of you may misunderstand the fear of the Lord and that phrase may conjure false images up in your mind. For some of you, this idea of fearing the Lord makes you think that God is at the very best, kind of slightly irritated, slightly angry all the time, and that he's walking around, watching your every step, just waiting for you to mess up so that he can crush you, punish you, humble you, whatever. Some of you probably grew up in homes where that was the image of God for you. Well, beloved, that is not the heart of God, and that's not what's behind the the, the admonition for us to fear the Lord. The Lord is not like a father who has a hair trigger and just goes off at anything that happens in his family. The Lord is truly happy inside of his heart, beloved, in his heart, in the depths of his heart. God is happy in his disposition, so he doesn't, well, I guess he never wakes up, but I was going to say he doesn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed, like ever, ever. This fickle heart of mine amazes me sometimes. I'll have the best day I feel like I've ever had in my life. The next morning, I just wake up a grump. What, what is that? Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a flawed heart. God does not have a flawed heart. He never wakes up grumpy. It never happens to him. He is a happy God. You know, when the Bible talks about the blessed God, that word blessed actually means happy. So glory be to the blessed God, to the happy God. God is happy in his heart. He's happy in his disposition. He's happy in his dealings with people. But what happens is he has a, an absolute value on holiness, righteousness, justice, and wisdom. And when those things are, value, are, are devalued, when those things are violated, it offends him, it hurts him, it provokes him, it does anger him, and he is slow to anger. Remember, he said this in Exodus 34. I am the Lord, slow to anger. He does not have a hair trigger. His fuse is longer than any of us could imagine. But beloved, when we push him and push him and push him and push him and he goes off, then he goes off. None of us wants to know what it's like to receive the wrath of God. None of us wants to know that. In Revelation, it says that the wrath of God will be so severe. In fact, it calls it the wrath of the Lamb. The, the ra- you don't normally think of lambs as very wrathful, right? This is Jesus we're talking about. The wrath of God will be so severe that some people will look to the rocks and mountains and say, please, just fall on us and crush us. We'd rather be crushed by rocks than face this God. None of us wants to know the wrath of God. But what I'm trying to say now is that the wrath of God does not imply that God is an angry person. It implies that he values holiness, he values righteousness, he values obedience, he values submission, And he will protect those things. But for now, because of his overflowing mercy, the offer of entering into his rest still stands. The offer of of receiving forgiveness for everything we have ever done or thought or said still stands. It's wide open and it stands. So fear the Lord. What does that mean? It does mean to tremble before the Lord, to have that kind of maybe physical fear in a way, But more, it means to look to the Lord and see the beauty of the Lord and the goodness of the Lord and the greatness of the Lord and the glory of the Lord and to to be in awe of Him, to respect Him, to take Him seriously, to take His Word seriously. 
Listen to these descriptions of the fear of the Lord. Last, uh, or yesterday, I searched on this phrase, the fear of the Lord, and I just found a bunch of places in the Bible where it defines what the fear of the Lord looks like from the perspective of God. So please hear the word of God about the fear of the Lord and receive it from him. Here's what it looks like to him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. And Job even says that the fear of the Lord is wisdom. That's a positive thing. The fear of the Lord is pure in the eyes of the Lord and it makes his heart happy. It pleases God when he sees the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil and the love of holiness and righteousness. The fear of the Lord is the foundation of justice in heaven and on earth. The fear of the Lord, the Bible says, will prolong your life. The fear of the Lord gives us strong confidence. So rather than breeding in us an insecurity that's afraid God is going to reject us, the fear of the Lord actually breeds inside of us stability, confidence, and assurance in the presence of God and the blessing of God upon our lives. The fear of the Lord is a very good thing. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. So when God says, come fear me, he's saying, come walk away from death. He's inviting us into good things. The fear of the Lord is a treasure worth seeking as though it was silver or gold or some other hidden treasure. The fear of the Lord leads to life and whoever has it rests satisfied. So the Bible says, Let your heart not envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all day. Beloved, the fear of the Lord is not a negative thing. It is not a call to an insecure, trembling fear that God's just going to go off on me at any moment. It's not that kind of a call. The fear of the Lord is awe, respect, reverence, obedience, and love given to the God who has done so much for us. Even Jesus Christ, it is said, walked in the fear of the Lord. I came across this prophecy in Isaiah about Jesus. Let me just read it to you. It's Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. Think about this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, which I think means David, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, which I think means Jesus. So now we're talking about Jesus. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, The spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord is going to rest upon Jesus. And his delight, his happiness, his joy in this life shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge what he sees by the eye or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. In other words, he'll be pronouncing justice and judgments that no one can escape. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The banner over the life of Jesus Christ on this earth was walking in the fear of the Lord. And so he taught his disciples to do the same thing. He told them in Matthew chapter 10, he said, listen, I think I mentioned this last week even. He said, don't fear the people who can kill your body, the people who are going to persecute you. The people who are going to take your property and put some of you in jail and maybe even take your very lives, don't fear them. But I tell you, fear the one who can kill your body and then he also has power to put you in hell and you will never come out again. I tell you, fear him. 
And then Jesus went on to say that God values you, though, much more than the sparrows of the air or the grass of the field, so don't fear him. Sometimes Jesus says stuff to jar us, (laughs) to confuse us, to make us think. He doesn't resolve the puzzle for us so that in the process of thinking, the truth of what he's saying drives deep into our soul. I remember when I first noticed this years ago, I said, Lord, what's going on here? You're contradicting yourself. Fear him, do not fear him. Two verses later, fear him, two verses later, do not fear him. So what's the Lord saying? The Lord is saying, walk in the fear of the Lord, but you don't have to worry. He's not a capricious, angry God who's ready to go off at anything and just destroy you. He's in perfect control of himself, and he has the best intentions for you in mind. He's prepared the best things you could ever imagine for you in your mind and in your life. You you could never conceive what God has done for those who believe in him. So fear him, but don't be afraid of him. The church got this. The early church walked in the fear of the Lord. In Acts 9.31, there's this phrase that blessed me a lot yesterday as I meditated on it. Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. So the fear of the Lord does not breed in us an insecurity and it does not breed in us this sort of wondering mind that's like, oh, is God going to reject me and kick me out of his family at any moment? Rather, the fear of the Lord breeds a deep and strong and unshakable assurance and it breeds the comfort, it attracts the comfort of the Holy Spirit. When we walk in the fear of the Lord, it's like an aroma that smells so sweet to the Spirit. To Him, the fear of the Lord smells like brownies smell to me. When I smell brownies, I come a-running. And when the Lord smells the humility of the fear of the Lord, He comes a-running and He's right there. The church walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I can't help but read just one more text to you. This is such a cherished text to me. Isaiah 33, 5 through 6. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Terry Flager, remind me someday, I want to write a book called Zion's Treasure. Isn't that an awesome title for a book? It'll be a book about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure, and it's our treasure too. So the author of Hebrews is pressing us as hard as he can. Please, please come into the fear of the Lord. But he's inviting us into a precious thing, beloved. He's inviting us into a positive thing. So, since the promise of entering God's rest still stands, let us fear lest any of us should seem to have failed to reach it. In other words, let us come away from the cliff. Like, don't live your life right on the edge where you're not really sure if you're going to be in or out. Come away from the cliff. Leave the ambiguity and let your true passions be for Christ. Go all in for Jesus and hold nothing back. Cease from drifting away from the Lord and give your all to him who gave his all for you. Heed this gracious warning from the Lord and walk in the fear of the Lord.
Why is this so important for us? Well, look, in in the beginning of verse two, he begins to answer again that good news came to that generation who also lived under Moses. So in other words, we're not a lot different from them. We receive good news about Jesus, and the truth of it is that generation received the gospel too. They received the good news too. I'm not gonna take the time to read these, but you can look in Exodus 19, Exodus 23, Exodus 24, and you will see that God preached the good news to the people of Israel. Here, here would be my clue if I was in your spot reading the Bible. Say, where did God preach the gospel to Israel? Any time that the Lord is connecting Israel to the promises that he made to Abraham, he is preaching the gospel to them because Jesus Christ is the culmination of all the promises to Abraham. And so when God is saying to Israel, come, I've created for you a promised land. Come, I've, I've created for you a place of milk and honey. Come, I've created for you a place of blessing and you will be my people and I will be your God forever and ever. All the nations are mine, but you, Israel, you're my treasured possession. You're mine forever. When God talks like that, he's preaching the gospel to them. They don't know the fullness of it yet, but believe me, the fullness is coming. Moses may have known the fullness of it, He didn't speak it out yet, but one way or the other, those people had the gospel preached to them. Um, But here's the issue. Hearing the good news is not enough in itself. Hearing has to be united with faith. The perception of truth from God has to be married with a heart that believes in that truth. It's just the way it is. Many people in that generation did not receive the good news with faith. They didn't believe him. They believed their own wisdom. They believed their own doubts. They believed their own insecurities and fears more than they believed in the Lord and they turned their back on him and stubbornly refused all of his advances. And because they refused to believe, Hebrews says that this message did not benefit them at all. Now that's, that's really hit me between the eyes this week as I was studying it. It's like, wow, how could you say that? It's like saying a a nuclear bomb hit my house, but nothing happened. The most powerful transforming message that's ever been released in the earth came to these people and it did nothing for them. Why? Simply because they refused to believe. They refused to believe. They would not believe. Please hear the word of the Lord, beloved. There is nothing so cancerous in this life as unbelief. We must do everything in our power to rid our hearts of unbelief. The only gate into the promises of God is called by grace through faith. That's the label on the gate. There's not another gate. The only way to get into the things God has prepared is by grace through faith. They refused to believe believe, and they were denied entrance into the promises of God. It's pretty serious. Look at verse three. On the other hand, we who have believed are entering that rest. It's a present tense verb. So we are in the process of coming into the fullness of what God has prepared for those who believe. We're snacking now on what will be a feast later. So we're just tasting drips of the rest that later will absolutely flood upon us forever and ever. And what's the difference between those who are entering and those who are not entering? Well, it just comes down to this one word, belief. No one is better than another one. God did not choose some because they were better. That's not what makes the difference. Belief is what makes the difference. And so let us fear the Lord and be among those who believe. Listen, I, I feel this warning much 
deeper in my soul than I feel like I'm able to express to you as a people whom I love very much. But I fear that some people could sit in church like this for their whole life and hear the message and even speak the message eloquently and yet never let it touch their hearts. They never believe. And then you get to the face of God and he says, I never knew you. I never knew you. Please listen to the voice of the Lord today. You must unite the good news with belief. You must. There's not another way. Faith is the thing that releases all the power of the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, what is God's rest that we're talking about here? What exactly is being offered to us? What are, being, what are we being encouraged to embrace? Well, let me say this about the rest of God to begin with. God's rest is ancient and it's eternal. Its roots are found at the dawn of creation and its fruits will go on forever and ever and ever. They will never come to an end. In Genesis chapters one and two, we read the story of creation. You know that well. Over a period of six days, God created everything in heaven and on earth and on the seventh day, he rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now this means that he rested not only from creating the material universe, but that he also rested from creating the spiritual universe and the entire scope and sequence of salvation history. He created it all and he rested from it all. God is wise. He is all-knowing. Nothing is hidden from his sight. He sees the end from the beginning. And therefore, he saw the rebellion of Adam and Eve before it ever happened. He knew that Adam and Eve would sin before they ever sinned before, in fact, he ever created the world. God saw the spread of sin and wickedness in the human heart and through the world before it transpired. God conceived the sacrificial system and made it up in all of its parts before he ever revealed it to Moses, who then gave it to Israel. God planned the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ who would become the righteousness of all who believe in him and who would become the sacrificial atonement for all who would give themselves to him. God fashioned the church before the foundation of the world. Later, he would call her the bride of Christ. But for now, he wrote down the names of every single person in his book of life. The Bible says this, before the foundation of the world, Some people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on this earth had their names written in the book of life before God created the world. God did everything, beloved, in that six, seven days. God prepared a great and final feast, and he dreamed of all the contours of heaven, which is the true promised land, the eternal promised land, and God decreed with an irreversible decree the ultimate end of everything and every person in heaven and on earth. And then on the seventh day, the Lord rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And if you read Genesis 2, 1 through 3 carefully, you'll see something that is is simple to see, but it's very profound and it's very important. Namely, you will see that the seventh day never comes to an end. It never ends. Read the creation account later on your own. You'll see day one, there was morning, there was evening, the first day. There was morning, there was evening the second day. There was morning, there was evening the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day. When we get to the seventh day, all it says is that God rested from all the works that he had done in creating, and that's it. And for centuries and centuries before Christ, even Jewish scholars said this means that the rest of God is eternal, 
that it began at the end of creation, but that it will go forever and ever and ever. The rest of God is a real living thing, and it's available for us to enter into now. It's ancient in that it began at the dawn of creation, and it's eternal in that the seventh day will never end, and the rest of God will go on forever and ever. With that in mind, let me say something now about what God's rest actually is and what it is not. First of all, what it's not. God's rest is not total cessation of activity. Somebody, after all, has got to hold up the universe, right? I mean, God just can't go to bed and say, I'm done. We don't believe like the deists believe. The deists believe that God was like a watchmaker who got it all prepared, wound up the clock, and then just sat back on his easy chair and just watching it all happen. That's not God. God's rest does not mean that he's not active. Jesus said in John 5.17, My father is working until now, and I am working. So God is active. It's his rest does not mean that he's not active. I think we find the clue to what it means then in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, where it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Very good. God saw the invisible aspects of creation, and God saw the visible aspects of creation. God saw the entire flow and the outcome of salvation history. He saw the entire drama between demons and angels and and saved people and unsaved people, believers and unbelievers. He saw the whole thing. God saw the full and final consummation of all things when Christ returns and brings us home and we live with him forever in heaven while the disobedient and wicked are separated from us and from him forever and ever. God saw it all, beloved, and he took great joy in it. He thought it very good, and so I think we can say this about the rest of God. The rest of God is the delight of God in the glory of God displayed through creation. So what does it mean to say that God rested? It means that he created everything in heaven and on earth, spiritual and unspiritual, by which I mean material, visible and and invisible. He created it all, and he thought it was very good, and he delighted deeply in the display of his glory. The rest of God is God sitting back and enjoying to the fullest all the work that he has done. The rest of God is the delight of God and the glory of God that's displayed through creation. And from the beginning, from day one with Adam, God has been inviting others into this rest, into this delight, into this joy. And from the beginning, you'll see in verse 5, God has been excluding unbelievers from that rest. And the reason for this is very simple. Those who don't believe in the goodness and promises of God can't possibly delight in the goodness of God, right? Right? If I don't think God is good, how can I delight with God in God? How can I do that? If I don't believe anything he said is true, how can I delight with God in God? If I reject all of his goodness and wisdom and ways and will for my life, how can I rest with God in God? It isn't possible. Unbelief slams the door to the rest of God. It has to. It just has to. That's the bad news. But the good news is that God is still extending the promise to us. No matter how many have refused to believe, it still remains for some to enter into the rest of God. God in his grace has appointed a certain day, and he called that day today, 
And as long as we call that day today, the offer of rest still stands. I remember a guy I just actually was interacting with on Facebook that now after 20 plus years is a believer in Jesus Christ. But when we were in the world together, we were drug addicts as 14, 15, 16, 17 year olds. This guy was all into the Satan stuff. I mean, he was flat out, he would tell you he was a Satan worshiper. He loved all that stuff. So I came to Christ, I'm sharing the gospel with him, and David says to me, no, uh, somebody put a curse on me that's unbreakable, and I'm just cursed forever and ever. And I remember saying to him, David, as long as you have breath in your lungs, it is possible for you to come to Jesus Christ. The devil is a liar. As long as today is called today, the offer of rest still stands. That is the good news, beloved. That is the good news. Now here, just as readers of the Bible, we see something of the mastery of the writer of Hebrews as he deals with Scripture. Chapter 4 is a little complicated. If you're just to sit down and read it on your own, it's a little bit hard to follow what's happening. But let me, let me try to explain something because I think we really see his masterful use of the scripture that brings him to the point that I just made, that that salvation is available for us today. The entire warning of Hebrews chapter 3, 7 through 4, 13 is built upon the words that he quotes from Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11, okay? So you have the book of Hebrews, he quotes Psalm 95, which was written by David. Psalm 95 is referring to events that actually took place and are recorded in another book of the Bible, Numbers chapter 14. So the author of Hebrews quotes a guy who quotes a guy. You see? And I asked the question, why didn't the author of Hebrews just quote the guy? Why didn't he do this? Why did he go through David to get to Numbers? Why did he do that? Didn't make a lot of sense to me at first. Well, the reason that he did that was to show the nature of God's rest and to show the eternal nature of that promise that's extended to all peoples. In Deuteronomy chapters 1 and 12, in Joshua chapter 23, the Lord promised to grant rest to the people of Israel, and by that he meant he was going to bring them into the land of Canaan and drive out all their enemies. And when they would have rest would be the day when those enemies would no longer war against Israel. So in these texts, the rest of God means ceasing from war, And the reason they were to cease from war was so that they could worship God forever and ever. The whole purpose for why God took his people out of Egypt and into Israel was so that they could worship him forever and ever. And he promised them, I will give you rest so that you can worship me. But if possessing the land of Canaan was all that God meant by this word rest, the writer of Hebrews is arguing... Why then would he inspire David 400 years after they had already taken the land to say, today you can enter into his rest? David was the king of Israel, and under his kingship, Israel occupied more land than at at any other time of their history. They had come into a fullness of rest under David's reign, and then under Solomon for sure, because there was no warring under Solomon at all. And yet here David is saying, today... Do not harden your hearts. Today you can enter into the rest of God. This means that the rest of God is not an earthly, temporal thing, but God's rest is a heavenly thing, and the true promised land is the promised land of heaven. It's not the promised land that was on earth. It turns out, beloved, that when Joshua was leading the Israelites into the land of Canaan, and when he led them to take that land, 
He was nothing more than a living metaphor of another Joshua. And by the way, Jesus' name in Hebrew is Joshua. So they have the same names. Joshua becomes a living metaphor of Joshua, Jesus, who would later come and deliver his people into the eternal promised land, into the eternal rest of God, where he would stand on that hill there in Matthew 10 and say, everyone who'll come to me, come and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Believe me, when Christ said that, he had all this stuff in mind. That word rest is very pregnant for Jesus. He meant come into the eternal salvation that God has prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Come and enter into the enjoyment of God in the glory of God in all that God has done, mainly through Jesus Christ. So now look at verse nine. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Beloved, that is tremendously good news. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So the good news of Hebrews 3, 7 to 4, 13 is that the door to God's rest is still wide open. The offer of entering into eternal happiness with God is still there. And therefore, because that's true, the author says that we should do everything in our power to enter through that gate that says, by grace, through faith. We should do everything in our power to unite the words we have heard about the good news of Jesus with belief. If we will simply believe in his message, the gates will open wide, we will enter into the rest of God. Now, in verse 11 there, do you find it a little odd like I do? This phrase just seems to me to kind of strike each other. It says, strive to enter rest. Doesn't that sound a little bit contradictory? Don't normally think of striving in order to rest. I think the Lord loves to put sentences like that together to make us stop and think, to make us say, Lord, what is it that you're saying here? Well, as I've thought about this this week, I've come to think of it like this. I think that the author of Hebrews is saying, make every effort in your life to open up your heart to what Christ has already done for you. The, the rest of God has already been provided for you. You don't have to earn that rest. The one who has entered into God's rest ceases from his or her works. What does that mean? It means I stop trying to earn my way to God. It means I stop trying to make myself commendable to God. It means I stop this business of, Father, was I, was I holy enough this week? Am I pleasing enough to you now this week? Did I do good enough? Father, was this thing that I screwed up, did I screw it up so bad that I'm out now? No, we stop that kind of striving. That kind of striving is over. What he's talking about is make every effort to just turn to Christ and open your arms wide and say, I believe. That's it. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And all we do is say, yes, Lord, I believe. I believe. When we unite faith with that good news, beloved, the transforming power of Jesus begins to come in. And we begin to be freed from the power of sin. We begin, we begin to be freed for the power of, of Jesus Christ. So striving to enter the rest of Christ is exactly the opposite of drifting away from Christ. You remember in chapter two where he said some of you are drifting, drifting, drifting? He said stop drifting. How do you stop drifting? Strive to enter rest. How do you strive to enter rest? You open your heart and say, Jesus, I believe. You're the anchor of my soul. 
Nothing that I drift back to is going to satisfy me. If I drift back to the things of the world, it's only going to make stuff worse. It's going to make it a lot worse. You all know it, the law of diminishing returns. The thing that jolts your soul today will not jolt your soul tomorrow. And you, re- you return to that junk and you're just going to be flat out. Just don't do it. Turn to Christ and say, I believe. I believe. That's it. That's the kind of striving we're talking about. So the, the saying that I put before the church a few months ago, I think, still stands. Remember, I said, herein lies the key to life. Cease to strive. Rest in Christ. Herein lies the key to life. Cease striving and rest in Christ. I mean the kind of striving that tries to make ourselves acceptable to God. We don't need to do that anymore. We don't need to do that. After the holidays, I plan to bring a whole message on verses 12 through 13. But let me just say now, when it says that the word of God is active and living and piercing, it's not making an abstract statement about the word of God. What Hebrews is saying here is that, listen, this story that I've been telling you from Numbers 14 and Psalm 95, this story is about you. This story was not meant to just teach you things about stuff I did a long time ago. This story was meant to rip your heart wide open and expose the reality of what's in there and all the unbelief that's in there. And the reason I want to rip it wide open is because I want more than anything for you to receive Jesus Christ and enter into my rest. I want to be happy with you forever. So the Word of God, it's living and active, it's piercing, it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow, it tells the truth, it sees the truth, and it woos you. Come to Christ, come to Christ, come to Christ. You who are weary and heavy laden, come to Jesus and He will give you rest. So today, beloved, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Just let your Father speak to you. Let him woo you. Let him attract you to himself. I want to take just two or three more minutes and give you three applications, three things that you can do and that I really hope that we'll grow at in this church. There's several people that are really passionate about what I'm about to say briefly, and I just want to be a little bit of wind in your sails. I want to be fuel in your fire, and I want to encourage us to live by the gospel as a a church. First of all, make it your aim in life to know the gospel better than you know anything else in the world. You know, I, I love you enough to say it to you directly. Some of you can tell me more about your favorite sports team than you can about the gospel, and that's just wrong. Jesus Christ is a little bit more valuable than the entire NFL or the NBA or whatever your sport is. If you love Christ, you should know the gospel better than you know anything else on the face of this world. And I want to encourage you to do that. Go to 1 Corinthians 5, I mean 15, 1 through 8. All the pieces of the gospel are there. Start there, learn it, rehearse it, memorize it. Know the gospel really well. You can't unite the good news with faith if you don't know what the good news is. And believe me, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the good news is for all of life. The gospel is not just for the moment that you came to Christ. The gospel is for every moment of every day forever forever. The gospel is forever. So know it backward and forward. Number two, learn the art of preaching the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to your own heart. When you face sin, trials, difficulties, laziness, excitement, victories, whatever it is, learn to envision everything in your life in, through the lens of the gospel and learn to preach the gospel to your own heart. You have to do this, beloved. There's no other way to overcome. 
I love Matt Ward talked about in our community group a while back when he's struggling with sin. He gets on his knees and he does not say to Jesus, I will do better. He says, Jesus, you made promises to me to cleanse me and purify me and make me like yourself and I believe you. So please come, Lord, help me to overcome. I can't imagine a better way to struggle with sin than that. Jesus, you said you would do it in me and I believe you. That is a man who's preaching the gospel to himself. We need to learn to do that. It's our life, beloved. It is our life. Finally, number three, as you grow in your knowledge of the gospel and your ability to preach it to your own heart, exhort one another by the gospel every day as long as it is called today. This is God's antidote for unbelief. So when you're spending time together as a family, when you meet in men's groups and women's groups and community groups, when you're here on Sunday mornings, when you meet in the, in the, in the store or whatever, when you text one another, Facebook one another, email one another, talk to one another on the phone, whatever you talk about is your business, but always be sure, somehow come to the gospel. Exhort one another by the gospel. Beloved, I need you to preach the gospel to me. I'm a pastor, sure, but I am wired just like you are wired to need the food of the gospel in order to keep growing. So please, I invite you, preach the gospel to me. Whether it's an exhortation or whether it's a godly rebuke, preach the gospel to me. I need you and you need me and we need one another. This one another stuff in the Bible is no joke and it's not just about growing organizations. God is not interested in growing organizations. He's interested in growing people. He's interested in growing his people and the way we flourish in the kingdom of God. The miracle grow of the plant that is a soul that believes in God, that miracle grow is the gospel. And so we need to water one another with the gospel day by day by day by day. And I pray with all my heart, I pray that God would give us grace as a people to learn how to live by the gospel together. So let us fear the Lord. Let us strive to rest in Christ And let us pray now. Father, I thank you so much for your word. It is life-giving. Oh God, the last two or three weeks of study in this particular part of Hebrews has just been so, so fruitful for me. And I just want to thank you in front of everybody for your word, Lord. It has been life to me. You're such a good father. You know how to speak the truth. You know how to encourage. You know how to rebuke. You know how to do it all so masterfully and I just want to thank you for who you are. And I want to pray now that by the power of your spirit that you would release your word in this congregation and let it be to everyone exactly what it needs to be. Not everybody needs the same thing here today, Father, but you're able to take the same word and minister to every single soul and I pray in Jesus' mighty name that you will do just that. So we offer ourselves to you and we stand now to sing before you in Jesus' name.